Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So today we're talking about this question of the problem of science. And what we're really digging into is, is there a battle? Is there a war? Is there antagonism between science and Christ? See, where this comes from often is, is there's, this has been proven by, by data and research across North America, is that between the ages of 16 and 19, about half of young adults will walk away from their faith. In fact, they call it a dropout phase where between the ages of 16 and 19, questions will come up that people will say, I don't know what I believe about this. And questions will come up that they don't have an answer to and they'll walk away. And it's become this common narrative within Christianity that the cause of that dropout of 16 to 19-year-olds is science. That we believe there's this myth of there's, you know, there's a high school science teacher in the higher years or maybe it's a first-year university prof that takes great pleasure in trying to destroy people's faith. And in fact, if you pay attention to pop culture, there's been a series of movies put out by a Christian studio called God's Not Dead that's exactly about this and vilifies the first-year university sciences prof that's their goal is to destroy Christianity. But the problem is, is the data doesn't really agree. And what we're doing with this whole series is we're taking this concept of saying it's better to base our beliefs on what is true instead of what we want to be true or what we feel. And so we're trying to dig to what's true. So what actually causes that dropout between 16 and 19-year-olds? And we're going to end our service today talking about the four things that have actually been researched and proven that cause that dropout. And so that's where we're going to circle back to an end. But we want to base our beliefs on what's true. And so this whole series that we're doing is actually based on a book called The Problem of God by Mark Clark. So he's done all the background-based research, and then we're building on it for our conversations that we're having today. And I'd really like to encourage if, you know, we can only cover so much in 25 minutes or so on a Sunday morning. So if you want to dig deeper into this, I highly recommend grabbing a copy of this book. If you really want one and you're like, I just can't afford it, come and talk to me. We'll find someone that's willing to loan you a couple bucks and, and buy the book for you, or we'll just buy a couple copies ourselves. But here's what we're digging at is, is there a battle between science and faith? And as I said, we want to base our beliefs on what is true rather than what we feel or what we want to be true. And so here's what what I want to do for the first part of our time together is I want to dig into this myth that science and Christianity and science and faith are against each other because where this myth actually comes from comes from a term called historical revisionism. And this is the practice of looking back at history and changing the facts to fit a narrative that we want to kind of continue today. And so when we talk about historical revisionism, it's like saying, oh, well, that didn't happen, or maybe it was interpreted differently. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple of these myths that have been revisioned by people trying to push a narrative that there is a battle between faith and science. And so we're going to talk about three of these myths that we're going to start with. So the first myth, the church teaches that the flat earth theory is true, that our world is flat, and if you go too far off to any direction, you'll fall off the edge. Now, some uh, groups of atheists will like to point out and say, well, the church taught this. That was accepted doctrine by the church. But the truth is, that myth is completely a myth. The church has never taught or believed that the world was flat. In fact, 200 years 
before Jesus, there was a guy named, Ara- I'm, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Aratosthenes. He was a Greek philosopher and scientist and mathematician, and he was chair of the Library of Alexandria in Egypt. And he did this experiment that was really ingenious using shadows and a well. And he actually calculated the circumference of the earth 200 years before Jesus, and he was only off by 15%. See, it's been common knowledge that the world is round. All you have to do is observe a ship sailing on the ocean and you see it disappear, the bottom first, and then the mast, and then finally the flag on the top disappears. We can see the curvature of the earth. This has never been a teaching of the church. And so if you kind of disprove that myth, sometimes people will pull up this one and they'll say, well, but isn't it true that the church persecuted scientists because of their discoveries? And this is where it gets a little complicated because there's some grains of truth in this. And it comes down to three scientists in particular that I'm going to give you a bit of background on we're going to talk about. And that's Copernicus, Bruno, and Galileo. And so let's start with Copernicus. Copernicus lived 1473 to 1543. So we're talking 15th to early 16th century. He published a book stating that the sun is the center of the universe, not the earth. And this was a novel idea because the accepted scientific consensus and was adopted by the Catholic Church was that the earth is fixed, and if you stand up and you watch the stars at night, you see they move around. And it was observed by nature, this. And atheists and people that are trying to push this agenda will say, well, but he was put on trial for that, wasn't he? Well, yes, he was. 73 years after he died, he was never forced to stand and was persecuted for his beliefs. In fact, at the time, Copernicus was ridiculed by the entire scientific community, Because they said, of course the earth is the center of the universe. We all know that. And in fact, when his trial did happen 73 years after he died, all they said was, we need more research to prove this. They didn't persecute him for it. They didn't ban the publication. They said, you just need to research it more. And they tried to challenge other scientists, say, well, prove it. If it's true, prove it. So the second guy that gets marked and talked about a lot is a guy named Bruno. And Bruno is kind of fascinating because he actually did get put on trial by the Catholic Church for his views. Here's the problem, though. They weren't actually about his views on science. Bruno was put on trial in 1600 by the church because he refused to stop teaching false doctrine about Jesus and false doctrine about the Trinity. He ignored the Trinity and said, Jesus is not God. He said the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. He tried to push back to saying, well, there's only one God. And it was actually those thoughts and beliefs that got him in trouble with the Catholic Church in the year 1600. And here's the problem with Bruno, is all the accounts, every historian agrees, Bruno was a jerk. He treated people with contempt. He actually instituted riots when people would disagree with him. He would use any tactic necessary to just be a grade A jerk. And so it was really about his heresy and his contempt of the church that caused the Catholic Church to say that he was a heretic, he was teaching false doctrine, false theology, and so the Catholic Church did have him executed. That part is true, but it wasn't for science. See, in fact, there's a statue of Bruno in Italy that actually has the plaque, the first martyr for science, inscribed on it, and it's a lie. In fact, in 2014, there was a TV show um, that PBS put on called Cosmos, and Neil deGrasse Tyson did this mini-series about space and the universe and the origin of everything, and half of the first episode was about Bruno and the church's persecution of him. 
Here's the problem. Bruno was not persecuted for science. He was not put on trial for science. The whole first half of that episode is wrong. And it's this myth that gets perpetuated that the church is anti-science because we look back at these. Okay, one more that we all have probably heard about, Galileo. So he lived 1564 to 1642, so you know, slightly after Bruno. And what's interesting about Galileo is he was a close personal friend of the Pope. And his trial, because Galileo agreed with Copernicus, he was one of the guys that took on the challenge to prove that Copernicus was true or false, and he came to the realization that Copernicus was right. The earth is not the center of the universe. In fact, the sun is the center of our solar system, and we revolve around it. We all know that now. But Galileo's trial was actually a political ploy against the Pope. It was an attempt to force the Pope to step down because they thought he might side with his friend rather than with the the people trying to prosecute him. And so officially, Galileo was banned from publishing further works, but he still published books until just months before he died. And in fact, he was never put in prison. He was put on house arrest, but house arrest in that day just meant he had to report to the local bishop where he lived. So if if Galileo decided he wanted to move to a different home, he would just have to tell the church, hey, this is where I'm living now. That was the extent of his punishment. They only threw one more thing at him, and they told him, we want you to read seven psalms per day. It's not really a bad punishment, is it? We want you to grow in your faith. See, these three guys, Copernicus, Bruno, and Galileo, get pointed out as this example that the church persecutes scientists, but the narrative isn't true. See, here's what's actually true about the narrative. Scientific inquiry and discovery flourishes because of Christianity. Because of a Christian worldview that God created the earth and is in a relationship with us and designed us to be his image and his representative in the world is actually the foundation for the entire basis of scientific inquiry. So science means we observe something, we see something happening, and we want to understand it more. And so we observe it, we come up with a test, we come up with a theory, a hypothesis that we want to test, we prove it true or false, then we get other people to test the same thing and try to replicate the results. Because if we can repeat it, we can replicate it, therefore it's true, and that becomes accepted as fact. See, the Christian understanding of the world that there is order that God created is the only ancient worldview that leads, that forms the philosophical base for science to exist. Let's, let's compare this. So if we take a look at like pagan and polytheistic religions and beliefs where they would believe in a whole host of gods and say, well, why does it rain? And the answer is, well, the, the god of rain caused it to rain. No need to study that. They, it was their whim. Or why does water bubble up? Oh, well, Poseidon is the god of the sea and he causes the ocean to bubble up and swell. It's just he's angry. That's why we have waves. That doesn't lead to hard data. That doesn't lead to observing. We can take the Buddhist perspective where the Buddhist perspective actually says the whole world is an illusion and you yourself are just an illusion in it. So there's no, there's no don't bother with trying to study it because everything you're going to come to is just an illusion anyways because this is just an illusion. And if we take Hinduism, now Hinduism uh, has tons of different streams, but if we kind of take a broad picture and we pull it all together, Hinduism says that we all devolved from a higher state of consciousness, that everything in the earth is just consciousness that has devolved and has had physical forms wrapped around it. And the whole purpose of it, of 
of Hinduism leads to this, you just need to reach nirvana, this state of elevated consciousness. And so that doesn't lead to research either. That doesn't lead to study and understand. In fact, only the Judeo-Christian view that God created and set things into motion, that God created natural law and order that we can observe and follow and see, is the only worldview that actually leads to scientific inquiry. And what's even more than that, in the 11th century, the church created our entire system of higher education, universities, bachelor's degree, master's degree, doctorates, all that was created and fully funded by the church. The concept of saying that we will be better off as a society if we pull teachers and scholars and students together and we educate and we teach and we train was created, funded, endorsed by the church. In fact, every Western university that I could think of that I went and researched and checked their history, where they began, Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Cambridge, Oxford, even Brandon University in our own city began with churches. Brandon University began as a plant, as a school started by the Baptist, the Western Baptist Union of Canada. It began out of a Christian basis of saying, we, if we educate, if we train, if we teach people, the whole world is better off. And faith is better off when we're educated. Now, somehow, over the last kind of 60, 70 years, we have this narrative that universities need to be purely secular places, that they need to reject Christianity. But there's a simple fact that really kind of tosses that out the window. See, here's the truth. Science leads researchers towards faith just as much as it leads them away from faith. In fact, the American Association uh, for the Advancement of Science in 2009, so this is a body that exists to advance the causes of science across North America. They did a study of their own members, their own people that are part of this society, and anyone, they kind of defined this is who scientists and researchers are, and they included them as well in this study, and here's what they found. 51% of scientists believe in some form of deity or higher power, meaning that there is a supernatural higher power that exists. 51% checked off that box and say, yes, I believe in that. Furthermore, 31% believe in a personal God that they can have a relationship with, that can know them intimately. See, if science disproves faith, why do we have this, that 51% say, yes, there's a supernatural being, and 31% believe in a personal God? And here's what's fascinating about the numbers. Scientists in the hard sciences, so we're talking astronomy, physics, chemistry, biology, the observable nature ones, actually were higher than 51%. But scientists who were in the socials, like psychology, sociology, they actually tended to fall a little lower on the percentage. And so they could actually see that based on someone's field, the hard scientists that observe the natural world are, are being led to a conclusion that God exists. Isn't that interesting? See, here's really what I'm getting at. It's not science versus faith. It's not science against faith. We can be pro-science and pro-faith. Science and faith actually walk hand in hand a whole lot more than we think they do. And so I want to put up this first question for you guys to respond to through the YouVersion app, and we're going to discuss these together before we wrap up today. 
How has a scientific worldview either challenged your faith, become an obstacle for your faith, or maybe even become a catalyst of faith for you, something that spurred your walk with God on. And if you follow our Facebook page, we've been doing this new thing this week where we're doing Facebook live videos each day, uh, Monday to Thursday at 1220. And on Thursday, Vicki and I did a Facebook live where we both answered this question. We talked about this is what it means for us. This is how science has impacted our faith. And I'm going to share a little bit more about that later on. But if you happen to be on your lunch break, you, you follow us on Facebook, jump in and watch those Good, gravity still works. (laughs) Let's carry on. So when we talk about science and faith, there's one big question that everyone wants to get to, everyone wants to wrestle with and talk about. They say this, what about evolution and young earth creationism? Now there's many theories on this whole spectrum. In fact, from evolution being a pure, there is no God that ordered anything to, we just evolved and progressed in stages based on what's necessary for survival. And all the way on the other end of the spectrum is the perspective of saying young earth creationism, where we say, well, let's take Genesis 1, which was seven 24-hour days. We have to say it's literally seven 24-hour days, and we can backdate through the Old Testament. And we come up with this number of saying that the earth must be roughly 6,000 years old. And these are the two ends of the spectrum. Let me be clear on that. And there's actually a whole lot of positions down the middle. But if you ever get in a conversation with someone about science and faith and this topic of evolution and creationism comes up with, that's what everyone drives to. That it has to be either pure evolution or pure young earth creationism. And here's what I want to do. This usually gets presented as a lopsided debate. In fact, maybe some of you watched in 2014, there was a a highly publicized debate between Bill Nye, the science guy, and Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. They're the organization that have built a replica of Noah's Ark in Kentucky as a theme park for people to come to. And they did this debate where they argued Bill Nye in favor of strict evolution and Ken Ham in favor of strict young earth creationism. And you know what? It was kind of, it was really sad to watch because they couldn't actually talk about each other's points. They weren't able to actually have a conversation in their debate. And everyone who watched it said, hands down, Bill Nye won the debate. And and part of the reason for that is because Bill Nye is a respected science figure. He has some degrees behind his name. Ken Ham has some theology degrees behind his name, but not science degrees. And so he just wasn't equipped and prepared to actually discuss this. But here's what I want us to do is... We're going to talk about the flaws in each of these arguments. We're not talking about arguments against evolution or against young earth creation. We're going to take those positions in their purest form and say this is the problem with that argument. So we're not doing a a versus against. We're saying if this is the steel man argument, no straw arguments allowed. We're not setting up a false version we can knock down easy. We're going to deal with the strongest version of pure evolution, and we're going to deal with the strongest version of young earth creation, and let's try to find what's true in this. Are you, are you with me on that? You want to take this approach? So let's, in, in The Problem of God, Mark Clark defines this really well, and he, he built this definition. He, he based it off of what evolutionary scientists say about evolution, and he said this, evolution argues that, what presently, that presently what exists in us, whether a physical trait or emotional is nothing more than what was and continues to be useful for survival, not what is necessarily true. And this is the key foundation of all of evolution. All of our behaviors, all of our traits, the way our brains work, everything has to be useful for survival. 
because that's what our biological, physiological, mental drive is, is we have to survive. That's what evolution states. And in fact, because of that, species are in a constant arms race, essentially, trying to edge each other out. Who can survive? Who can last? Who can procreate more to be able to carry on their genetic material? So let's talk about some flaws in this. And this is kind of, I'm, I'm going to look at a couple of them, because, and then we're going to look at the big giant one in young earth creationism. So here's the first one. Missing transitional forms. And for this I want to quote Dr. Stephen Jay Gould. He's a Harvard paleontologist and a self-reported atheist. Um, we're not picking and choosing who we're pulling quotes from, but this is what he says. The extreme rarity of transitional forms, that means evidence of one species turning and transitioning into a different recognizable species. He says, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data, that means researched, proven, understood, only at the tips and the nodes of their branches, and the rest is inference. The rest is hypothesis that has never been proven. And in fact, he goes on to say, that that what the fossil record actually suggests is that species they find in the fossil records appeared all at once fully formed. And there is very little, if no, there's now there's minor adaptation of you see small changes happening, but you don't see drastic shifts happening um, like sometimes you've seen in, in videos trying to prove and saying, well, we see this morph into that. That's a lot of that is all just inference. It's educated guess. But it gets proposed as this is truth. So let's look at a, at a second one, and this one is interesting. This is cognitive development. See, the ability to think at a high level separates humanity from everything else. That's what makes human beings, the human species, so different from everything else. Is we have this capability to think at a high level. In fact, we think existentially. That means we ask questions about who we are, why we exist, how did we get here. Now, out of the most intelligent animal species, there's two remarkable ones that are worth noting. And the first is Coco the gorilla. And Coco the gorilla was taught sign language and could communicate with people very extensively. In Coco's entire existence, Coco never asked an existential question. Coco never asked a question about why Coco the gorilla existed, how he got here. This kind of threshold of what we say is the, the, the marker of higher cognitive development, that's the existential ability to ask questions, didn't exist. The second one is actually a gray parrot named Alex. And Alex is, is regarded as the most intelligent gray parrot that's ever lived. He could recognize shapes. Actually, they taught him simple addition. He could do simple math a gray parrot, one day, only once, Alex looked at a mirror and asked the question, what color? And the, the researchers working with Alex the gray parrot figured out how to describe gray and the color. But that's it. That's not actually a question of existence of who am I, why do I exist, why am I here, that threshold. Only humans have that ability to ask that question what separates us so much from everything else in this cognitive development that's so different? See, in fact, this is, what, this is what comes through natural evolution, is we say if evolution produces a cognitive mind that is focused on what's useful for survival instead of what is true, how can we trust our cognitive minds to be able to realize what truth is? 
Okay, it's kind of a high-level question. Let's, let's bring that down a couple notches because I even, like, I had to reread this numerous times and, and I'm majorly simplifying Mark Clark's, arc, Mark, Mark Clark's argument to get a hold of it. And so here's, here's what this comes down to. If our brains are driven only purely for survival, that means that our brains are focused on understanding what is true for the sake of survival. And if something is true that actually goes against our survival instinct, our minds should dismiss it. If we are purely driven by this desire to survive that evolution states we are, that means anything that is true but is not helpful for survival should be eradicated. It should disappear. And in fact, Charles Darwin himself, the originator of this whole evolutionary theory, stated that this argument about an evolved mind's inability to grasp truth in any form was, and I'm quoting him here, the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Even as he was writing this, he understood this is the big flaw. And so here's the test case for it. Religious beliefs. According to evolution, behaviors only continue to exist if they're beneficial for our survival. And so therefore, religious beliefs and practices of any kind cost resources and time that are necessary for survival. Time spent practicing our faith could have been spent gathering and producing resources. So we're all here on a Sunday morning. Why aren't we working to produce things? Evolution would say that if evolution is true, if the mind focuses only on what's useful for survival, any form of religious belief should have been eradicated millennia ago because it is not useful for survival. In fact, if we go back to the time of Jesus when um, the Jews uh, were living occupied by Rome, this was one of the reasons why Romans didn't like Jewish people. They said they were lazy because they took a Sabbath. Because the Jewish people took one day off per week where they would choose not to work, they weren't producing resources, they wouldn't work their crops, they wouldn't go to the market to trade and to buy and to sell and barter. Because of that, they said, well, why should this people group have survived if they're cutting their productivity by one-seventh? Even then, they recognized this, even long before the theory of evolution was pushed up. And so these, what we've talked about here are the flaws in evolution's own arguments, not arguments against evolution, but the flaws in their own arguments. So then we have to do the same to young earth creationism, which, as I said before, is the very opposite end of the spectrum. If we point out evolution's flaws, we've got to look at the other side because we've got to treat this fairly and understand with this. And so here's the big one. If we want to believe in a 6,000-year-old world, we have to take a purely literal reading of Genesis 1. And what that requires of us is we have to disregard how the ancient Israelites and how the Jewish rabbis all understood their own passage of Scripture. The concept of reading Genesis as a literal seven 24-hour days is a modern invention. There's a few times in the history where it kind of popped up and someone would theorize, well, maybe this, but it never gained any traction, actually, until the late 1800s. So we're talking about 1,800 years after Jesus. This theory of young earth creationism, it's the first time it actually appears and gains any traction, but it requires this strictly literal reading. So why is that an issue? Why is that a problem? Well, here's the truth. Genesis 1 is concerned with who and what and does not actually respond to how and why. Genesis 1 cares about who 
and what happened. And this is what it says. In the beginning, God. That's the answer to who that Genesis 1 says. In the beginning, well, God was there. And we talked last week about uh, having a supernatural being um, actually setting things in motion and how that's required on this whole argument of contingency. And if you weren't here last Sunday, I invite you to check out our podcast and follow up on that. I'm not going to dig into it really big right now. But here's the answer to who. Well, and then what's the answer to what? God created the heavens and the earth. This is, at a foundational level, what Genesis 1 says. It actually doesn't make any outright statements for how God created. And there's a reason for that. God is speaking to, when he gives the Torah to Moses later on, he is speaking to a barely literate culture in a completely pre-science environment. If God tried to explain how he created, they wouldn't have understood. And we all get this. Okay, how many of you get asked incessant questions by your toddler, your two to three, four, five-year-old? How many of you remember that when your kids were that age? Okay, Olivia likes to ask one question repeatedly fairly often. Actually, she's kind of stopped because she's realized how I answer it. Why is the sky blue? How do you explain how the sky is blue to a child? Well, actually, everything we see is part of the visible spectrum of light. And there's actually a spectrum beyond that called infrared and a spectral below that that's ultraviolet. Sorry, other way around. Ultraviolet is higher. Infrared is lower. And out of the visible light, blue has the shortest wavelength. And in fact, when you look up at the sky, it's not empty. There's, pol- there's particles of, of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, and trace amounts of other gases, and that's all there, and we can't see it. So I've got to explain that to a two-year-old as well. So then we take this fact that visible light comes, it's, it comes from the sun, which is a giant nuclear explosion that keeps on going all the time. And it comes and it reaches the atmosphere and the blue has the shortest wavelength out of the visible light spectrum. So it kind of disperses and it, 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 and it diffracts and it bounces around and then eventually it hits our eyes. Now this is when it gets really cool. Are you with me? Are you tracking? In our eyes, there's these things called rods and cones and the rods and cones perceive this, infra, this light, this visible spectrum of light, and then our, it carries through the optic nerve to the back of our brain, and our brains interpret that as blue. Now, can I really blow your mind? What if your rods and cones are different? What if the color you see when you look at the sky isn't the color everyone else sees, but you think it is, because no one's ever told you different, and your eyes can't see different? So what I see as blue, you might see as red. You, are you with me? Is my three-year-old with me? Not anymore. So what do you say to a two- or three-year-old that asks, why is the sky blue? You say, you know, that's the color of the light that the sun shines as it comes through the sky. Isn't that simpler? It's kind of true. It's, it's based on fact, but it's not the whole picture. See, God could not give the whole picture to a pre-literate, pre-science culture. They wouldn't have understood And so what God did is what every one of us as parents do, and we package things so that our children can understand them. Now, I should hope, and if I do my duty as a parent, by the time Olivia gets to high school, she should understand a portion of what I just rattled through. Maybe not all of it. It'd be cool if she does. I think she's pretty smart. She probably will. But think of it. You know, we, when we're children, we speak and we reason as children. As we grow up, we dig into more advanced topics. And guess what? This is actually what Scripture talks about. See, what the theory that's in between young earth creationism and in between evolution, there's a whole range of a mix. There's a blend. There's a spectrum. And what actually more and more science leads to and points to is this. 
an intelligent design or guided evolution that God created and guided the evolution of all the species on the planet. And remember our paleontologist from Harvard who stated that it appears that species come in fully formed into existence. Huh. Genesis talks about stages and how humanity was the last piece that came in differently, that came in specifically. Isn't there some correlation in that? In fact, if we go to 1 Corinthians 13, 12, this is what Paul has to say. He says, now, talking about the current day, he's writing about first century, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then, and before this he was talking about when Jesus returns, then we will see everything with perfect clarity. So when we are with God, when Jesus returns, or when we live with him in heaven, then we will see clearly what now we only see imperfectly. So Paul says, all that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. This is what Paul's getting at. We aren't going to know the whole picture. So if we come back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 cares about who and what. It doesn't care about, about how. Now, if you want to believe in a young earth creationism, there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to believe in intelligent design or any of the gap age theories or any of the positions in there, there's nothing wrong with that. But what actually matters is that we recognize that God created. And we understand our own flaws of saying, if we want to take that approach, we're reading Scripture in a way that Scripture was never meant to be read. And so we have to wrestle through those things, and it's okay to be on a journey on this. I grew up in a church that taught a young earth creationism, and I believed that to be true for a long time. And it took time for me to realize, wait a second, I think there's something bigger. And God hasn't fully pulled back the curtain. But here's what I want to kind of move to. We talk about science, and then I said we're going to talk about the four things, and I know I'm running late, so we're probably not going to get to the conversation today, but we'll do some stuff through Facebook Live over the week. Sound good? What if science peering into the natural world will end up revealing God to those who are looking? Remember we said 51% of scientists believe in a deity, in a, high, in a God, and out of the hard sciences, the observable ones, it's actually higher? Paul wrote about this in his letter to the Roman church. He said this, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Paul said this 2,000 years ago. If we look, if we observe, we're going to find God. And in fact, um, I want to quote, give you two quotes. Alan Rex Sandage, he is the successor to Edwin Hubble, who we talked about last week at the Carnegie Observatories in California. And he said this, it's my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. Science led him to realize that science is not enough. There's something more that's missing. And there's a quote that, that I shared in our Facebook Live video I want to read to you. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself to the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Robert Jastrow in God and the Astronomers, he wrote that in 1978. What science actually leads to when we push and we pursue it is actually back into the existence of God. There is no 
battle between faith and science. There's just ill-formed arguments when we haven't dug to the depth of what is true and what's at the core. And this is what I really believe. And this was actually the quote that was really influential to me in reconciling this in my own life, was realizing that what science is leading us to through a roundabout way is what our study of Scripture and what theology already points us to. So here's where we started. We talked about the 16 to 19-year-old dropout. We say if it's not a battle between science and faith that drives 16 to 19-year-olds away from Christianity, then what does? It's four things. And this comes from the Sticky Faith study done by the Fuller Youth Institute. And they did a a study over a number of years, very broadly, well-researched, well-documented. This is a solid study that that we can respect. And they say it's the lack of four things causes this dropout where people walk away from their faith. Lack of intergenerational relationships. That means lack of relationships of your teen or your young adult with people that are generations older than them. Lack of relationships that span generations cause this dropout. Secondly is lack of understanding the whole gospel. This is how to integrate our faith and life together. It's if we get to this concept that our faith is one compartment of our life and everything else sits everywhere else and we shouldn't have any crosstalk between the two, that causes the dropout. And in fact, a big portion of that is what we're going to talk about in uh, two weeks when we talk about the problem of hypocrisy and how that causes, often will drive people away from faith. We're going to dig into it there. Number three, lack of parental involvement. And this one kind of hurts as a parent as we start thinking, you know, what am I setting up my children for? And there's a key point in this that I want to share. And they said the number one indicator in this is parents who don't ask their kids for forgiveness when they screw up. Parents that can't admit when they've made a mistake and apologize to their children and ask for their kids' forgiveness. That single act, if it's not there, will drive teens and young adults away from their faith. And that starts now. At whatever age your kids are, even if they're grown, are we as parents able to admit our mistakes to our kids or do we pull the daddy's always right card? Because let's be honest, the daddy's always right card, we like it better, right? Eat your broccoli, Daddy's right. Now, we shouldn't apologize for getting our kids to eat healthy. I'm going down a rabbit trail, sorry. Here's the fourth one, and this one really stood out to me, is the lack of a safe place to doubt. And here's the quote from them that I want to share with you. Doubt is not toxic to faith. Silence is. If we don't give our kids places to ask questions, to dig deep, to ask questions that we say, I don't know, but let's figure it out together. If we encourage that type of doubt, if we encourage questions that drive to truth, that's what builds a faith that survives the teenage and young adult years. That's what the Sticky Faith Fuller Youth Institute revealed. That's actually the four things. But wouldn't we rather say it's science? Because then it's not our problem, right? Wouldn't we rather say it's that first-year university professor with a chip on their shoulder? Because that's not my fault then, right? Here's the truth. It's up to us. How are we living our lives in front of our kids? How are we living our lives in front of our friends' kids? How are we investing in the next generation? That is what creates the sticky faith, the faith that sticks. That's why they called the study that. So I had two questions. Um, We're not going to get to them today. I'm sorry. I kind of got on a few rabbit trails and, and ran a little long. But 
we're going to do this. We're going to continue this conversation over Facebook Live. And so at 12.20, we're going to be either Vicky or myself or both of us are going to be live on Facebook. You can join in live or you can always watch it after the fact. And if you add a comment to it, we'll respond to it afterwards. But here's two of the questions that we're going to dig into. One is the question we talked about last Thursday. How has the scientific worldview either challenged your faith, become an obstacle, or become a catalyst? And then we're also, one of the days we're going to dig into this, if you've ever had a time period where you walked away from your faith because of the science versus faith argument, what drew you back? I'd be really curious to hear that. Like for me, it was that Robert Jastrow quote and recognizing that science is taking a longer direction to where theology already is. But I want to hear from you if you've ever had a time period where you said, you know, I walked away from my faith. Let's continue that conversation over, uh, over Facebook. Or if you don't have Facebook, you can send us an email. All our contact info is on that card you got on the way in. And so last piece before we pray and wrap up. These are the upcoming topics. Next week, we're talking about the problem of evil and suffering. Then we're going to talk about hypocrisy. We're going to talk about um, the Christian ethic around sex. We're going to talk about the problem of exclusivity. And then we're going to wrap it up with the problem of Jesus. Um, And so if you know someone that you've maybe had conversations about this topic with that you want to dive into, see where the truth actually leads, see what scripture actually has to say, why not invite them to be part of this with you? Uh, Maybe it'll lead to some interesting conversations you can have over lunch after the service or a coffee later in the week to take the time to process and wrestle through it because this is what we believe. We believe that truth will always wins out and that God is the fullness of truth and love. Let me pray for us. God, we, at times when we come to this topic, we often don't know what to say, what to think, what to feel, but God, we know that you're good, and we know that you set the world in motion through whatever means you chose to do, and maybe where all of us are completely wrong on all of it, and that's okay, because you are who you are. You are who you are. And so God, I pray that as we think about this, as we wrestle through this, as we have conversations about this, would you help us to have a tone of grace and humility of seeking to understand first the positions of others and discuss and walk together in these topics. And God, I pray that as we go through this week that you would open our eyes to the little pieces and things that you set into motion that as we look at the sky, as we look at the stars, we look at the rocks and the earth, that who you are would cry out to us and we would recognize you in the creation. Not that you are the creation, but you made it for our benefit and for our enjoyment to be in a relationship with us, and I pray you would help us see that this week. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, folks, thanks for being here. I hope you'll continue this conversation online and dig into this and have a great week. Next week, we're back. Problem of evil and suffering at 11 o'clock. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.